as we turn our attention now to our New Testament reading in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. I invite you to turn me your Bibles uh, there as we consider uh, the final two verses of this uh, really magnificent chapter, a chapter that really zooms in and brings to the foreground the great benefits of the new covenant that we are in a position so much better than even Israel itself at the base of Mount Sinai. This morning, uh, our sermon text will be verses 17 and 18, but for uh, the broader context, let's begin reading in verse 7. It's Paul himself speaking under inspiration of the Spirit, about the work of the Spirit. Now, if the ministry of death, speaking of Moses' ministry, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, a glory which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there is glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. And since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. Their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it is only through Christ that this veil is taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, that veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Or as some translations put it, quite literally, from this comes from the Lord of the Spirit. This is God's word. Let us go before him in prayer. And gracious God and Father, we do thank you for your word. We ask that you'd bless not only the reading of it, but the preaching of it that our hearts might be attuned to believe those things of which you speak concerning Christ and the Spirit. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. What's the purpose of the ministry? Maybe ask a more pointed question, what is a minister to do? Uh, This week I went to get my hair cut, uh, and of course as you're talking with the uh, Haircut lady, I, f- I forget the name, uh, what, they're, what they're called, barbers? There we go, barbers. Well, I was talking with the barber. Sorry, word slipped me. So I was speaking with the barber. Of course, we had the, 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 the standard conversation that you would have. How's your day going? Oh, it's pretty good. How about yours? Well, what do you do today? Well, I went on a hospital visit. Oh, what do you do? Well, I'm, I'm a pastor. It was interesting, the, uh, my barber's response. She said, oh, that's great. How you do such nice things for peace for people. I thought, well, that's an interesting way to describe the ministry. The pastorate. We do really nice things for people. You know, in some churches, uh, I know, uh, the pastor has to serve also as uh, the administrator for a high school 
typically for a, a school that's adjoined to the particular church, as if there isn't enough things to do for the work of the pastor on his plate. He also has to oversee uh, the going-ons of particular schools. And so for some, a minister is a little more than just being an administrator of day-to-day activities and affairs. I remember a number of years ago, I did youth ministry at a particular church, and after several months, is actually the week before Thanksgiving, quite embarrassingly, I, I got fired from youth ministry because I was leading Bible studies for the youth when a number of the parents really only wanted me to plan games and events, which was a surprise to me. But what we see here is there are a number of opinions that swirl about us, even in uh, solid, good churches, about what the ministry entails. We find, I think, that 2 Corinthians is the letter of the New Testament that spells out what an authentic Christian ministry looks like, particularly under uh, the New Covenant. And this has been the concern of Paul's for the past several weeks, or uh, through chapter 3, as we've been working our way through chapter 3 for the past several weeks, as Paul is now contrasting the ministry of Moses, a ministry that extends from Moses all the way to Christ, versus the ministry of the Spirit. And as we've seen, Paul's making two salient features. One, Moses' ministry ran only skin deep. We see that in the, the, the two examples that he gives. One, in the fact that the law is never written on the heart, it's only written on stone tablets. The law is given, but it only pronounces a curse because the heart has not been transformed or renewed. And so Moses' ministry, which is uh, reflective in uh, the moment that he uh, descends from Mount Sinai, as he has that face that is shining, we see Mo, uh, Paul point out, well, that that transparency was only a physical transparency. It was only a physical transformation, and one uh, that had a fading glory. Uh, Moses' shining face was much like a light bulb that dims over time. Even Moses himself died. As Paul points these particular things out, he begins to show us that the ministry of the Spirit is something that runs far more deeper, far more deeply Uh, than Moses' ministry did, because it gets at the heart of things. It doesn't have uh, uh, the luster and grandeur that we see under the old covenant. We don't see, as we assemble every Sunday morning, uh, a visible cloud descend from heaven as the spirit of the living God uh, uh, dwells in the midst of his people. But what we have is actually a greater glory, though it is hidden from our eyes. And what we see here in this passage this morning is that Paul compares the Christian's position under the new covenant to Moses' own position behind the veil of the tabernacle. And yet it is something that is even more glorious than what Moses had. Because the ministry of the new covenant brings something that the old covenant never could. The two things Paul brings out this morning is it brings freedom and it brings change. You see this, and this, I think, forms the two points that we have before us this morning. Freedom in verse 17, and change, or as some translations you might have before you, transformation uh, in the other. So freedom and change. Paul begins to explain what actually happens in the new covenant, but he does so by making a rather puzzling statement. You see here in the opening words of verse 17, the Lord is the Spirit. 
And we need to remember as we read Paul's letters that he is very consistent in the language and terminology he uses, not just in his letters to Corinth, but throughout all of his letters. You read uh, the end of 2 Timothy, it's very clear that Paul has kept a collection of uh, his most cherished letters, those letters which most likely became the basis for the Pauline corpus in our New Testament. And whenever Paul speaks of the Lord, it is is always in reference to the incarnation Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Think of how Paul begins this letter uh, uh, alone. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul, when speaking of the Lord, is speaking of the person of the Son. But it raises a rather interesting question as we have before us. What does he mean then when he says that the Lord is the Spirit? I think first thing we have to do is we have to say what Paul is not saying here. Paul is not equating the Son and the Spirit as being identical persons. I don't know how many of you have grown up in church context where the pastor would try to explain the doctrine of the Trinity something along these lines. Or a pastor might say, well, I'm a husband and a father and a son. And in a similar way, so is uh, uh, the, the God of the Bible. He is both a father and a son. That is not what is going on here. That's actually one of the earliest church heresies that we have, a heresy known as modalism, as if God were uh, an actor who puts on or dons a particular mask, changing his identity depending upon the context. One of the things that we recognize throughout Scripture's testimony is that Christ is the Son of the Father. It's not simply that Christ is both Father and Son. It is that Christ is the Son of God the Father from all eternity. Now, Paul is robustly monotheistic. We are not worshiping three gods. Rather, we are worshiping one God who subsists in three persons. And if you're thinking, man, that is exhausting, well, welcome to the doctrine of God. Because that is the purpose of the doctrine of God. God is one who is infinite, eternal, and unchanging. And his being and his character defies the comprehension of finite beings. All we can do is affirm and confess what Scripture uh, claims God to be. You think of Christ at his baptism. As Christ is being baptized, he hears what? The voice of the Father distinguishing and pointing out the person of the Son, saying, this is my beloved Son, even as the Spirit comes to rest upon him. So we recognize that there are three distinct persons within the Godhead, though we, in fact, one worship one God. Think of Jesus' own, uh, in the Great Commission, the great baptismal formula, that we are to baptize not in the names of Father, Son, and Spirit, but in the name singular, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. This is the testimony of Scripture. So we must say that Paul is not saying that the Son and the Spirit are identical persons. Still leaves us with a certain conundrum, doesn't it? We go, okay, well, that must be what Paul doesn't mean. So what does he mean? Well, we need to consider the flow of Paul's logic in this particular chapter. Uh, Notice verses 7 to 11, uh, what it is that Paul is discussing. Paul is discussing the ministry of the Spirit under the new covenant. But now there's a dramatic shift that takes place in verses 12 and following, particularly as you focus on verse 14. Paul now begins to speak of the ministry of Christ 
the one by whom that veil of judgment is removed. How is it that Paul can shift from speaking of the ministry of the Spirit to speaking of the ministry of Christ without skipping a beat? Therein lies the riddle, and the answer to that gives us an understanding of what Paul is saying. What Paul is saying is that the ministry of Christ and the ministry of the Spirit are one and the same. Theologians will speak of the inseparable operations of the Godhead. That there is a distinction of persons within the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit. The ministry is the same. In other words, the Spirit is not doing something over here that runs antithetical to the person, as if Christ, or as if uh, our triune God is some form of uh, a, a, a trifold schizophrenic. It is one and the same ministry. Not identical persons, but it is an identical ministry. What Paul is getting at here is you cannot have Christ apart from the Spirit. And similarly, you cannot have the Spirit apart from Christ. Consider what the, the New Testament says as it, as it pulls back the veil regarding the character of our triune God. The emphasis, of course, in the Old Testament being, Behold, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And yet when you make it to the New Testament, there is that drawing back of the veil that that one God subsists in three persons. In Christ's own incarnate ministry as God the Son from all eternity past, in a point in time, takes to himself flesh and bone, is born of a virgin. He is born by the Spirit. When he enters into his ministry, when he comes of age, he is baptized in the Spirit and is so empowered by the Spirit. It's the very first thing, the very first sermon Jesus preaches is when he unrolls the scroll to Isaiah 61 and says this, that the Spirit of the Lord has come upon me. He has anointed me to bring liberty to the captives. Christ is empowered by the Spirit to carry out the ministry, and even as he is crucified and condemned unjustly as a common criminal to die on behalf of sinners, three days later, he is raised by the power of the Spirit. And so that when Christ ascends on high on the day of Pentecost, 40 days after his ascension, what does he do? He pours out the Spirit. Pours out the Spirit on his church. Paul says at the end of 1 Corinthians 15 that it is Christ who gives the Spirit to his church. As our shorter catechism puts it, and it's a really helpful way to understand uh, the logic of the New Testament as it articulates to us the great work of redemption, that Christ has come to accomplish redemption, but now that he has ascended on high, he pours out the Spirit to apply the accomplished redemption in our hearts. And that is applied through the faithful preaching of the Word. That's why we speak of the, the, the ministry of the Word, the pulpit ministry, as a general calling to repentance and faith. And yet it is through the ministry of the Word that the Spirit comes and effectually renews our hearts and calls His elect to saving faith. The Spirit applies the redemption secured by the work of Christ. It is He who regenerates the individual by working faith in us through the preaching of Christ. It is the Spirit who unites us to Christ. It's one of the most common uh, phrases that we see in Paul's letters are that we are now in Christ. 
It is the Spirit who cleanses us from our sin. It is the Spirit who comforts us in all of our sorrow. It is the Spirit who empowers us to walk in God's ways and to speak the truth with boldness and clarity and conviction. It is the Spirit who preserves us that we might persevere faithfully to the end. Romans chapter 8, those whom he has called, he has justified. Those whom he has justified, he has sanctified. Those whom he has sanctified, he will, in fact, glorify. Philippians, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. But the Spirit gives us all the benefits, not just one of the benefits of redemption, but he applies to us all the benefits secured by Christ in his resurrection from the dead. Why is it that when Christ, uh, having been raised from the dead, Paul says this in 1 Timothy 3, that Christ's resurrection is his justification. How is it that in Romans 6, Paul will speak, uh, in Hebrews 2, the author of Hebrews will speak of Christ's resurrection as his sanctification, as his deliverance from the domain of darkness? How is it that Christ's resurrection is spoken of as his his glorification? Think of that, justification, dealing with the legal reality of sin, sanctification, dealing with the corrupting and enslaving nature of sin. Think of our adoption, which speaks of the reconciling work where we who were once aliens and strangers from the promise have now been brought near by the work of Christ. See, all these benefits of redemption are the antidote to the reality of sin, and it is the Spirit who applies this work in our hearts that we might be restored. So Paul's point here when he says that the Lord is the Spirit, one, he is identifying the Spirit with the same God of the Old Testament, the Lord to whom Israel had seen, even if veiled behind a cloud. And at the same time, Paul points here when he says that the Lord is the Spirit, that there is an inseparable ministry at work here. That Christ is not doing one thing over here, and he's not doing one thing over there. It really runs antithetical to the worldly notion of spirituality. Um, You go to uh, any uh, bookstore in the area, and you look at uh, the religion or spirituality section, what do you find when you look at common popular books on spirituality? What's the focus? Typically something along the lines of self-empowerment, self-illumination, some type of mystical experience. But what we find here, according to Paul, is that is not the work of the Spirit. The Spirit's work is to point us to Christ because there is an inseparable ministry taking place here. Jerry Packer has this wonderful illustration. I believe it's one of Gary's favorite books, Keep in Step with the Spirit. I encourage uh, everyone to read, I encourage you to read everything ever written by J.I. Packer, but I think keeping step with the Spirit is a good place to start. Jay Packer has this wonderful illustration where he likens the work of the Spirit to a, a floodlight in a, in a football arena. Of course, Jay Packer's English when he says football, he's probably talking about soccer, but we'll stick with the real sport, right? We'll stick with football. That's a joke. Anyways, you think of uh, uh, a floodlight. What is the purpose of a floodlight on a Friday night? You go to a high school football game. Do you go to the floodlight to look at the floodlight? No, you go to, to watch the football game, and what is the purpose of the floodlight? It's to point away from itself to where the real action is taking place. That is the ministry of the Spirit. 
The ministry of the Spirit is to point us to Christ. And if anybody ever wants to talk about the work of the Spirit and they do not talk about Christ, they are not talking about the Holy Spirit, but something far more diabolical. The Spirit's work, His purpose is to remove the veil because it is only in Christ that the veil is lifted The Spirit works that we might see Christ even as he is given to us in types and shadows and promises and prophecies, even in the Old Testament. He's given to point us to Christ who is both God and man fully. He is given to us to point us to Christ who in the office of the mediator as our redeemer executes that office as our prophet, as our priest, and as our king. It is the work of the Spirit to point us to Christ who endured the sufferings on our behalf in his estate of humiliation so that he might be exalted and enter into an estate of glory. And it is the Spirit who now begins to shape the life of the believer to follow that same pattern. Christ suffered for us, Peter says in 1 Peter 2, leaving an example for our sake, that we might follow in his steps, that just as Christ suffered unjustly, so shall we, and we are given a pattern to do so, so that we might inherit an unfading crown of glory at his return. It is the Spirit who shapes us and molds us to look look like Christ, but you cannot talk of the Spirit apart from Christ. You cannot talk about Christ apart from the Spirit. Beware anyone who speaks of the Spirit uh, in a way that tries to draw you away from Christ to other things. I think this is a, a, a just driving up and down this area, seeing uh, various stores. I think there's a, a certain interest in kind of uh, spirituality in kind of the Eastern mystical sense. That's not the spirituality of the New Testament. Something far more personal, something far more robust, something that points to the Lord who gives the Spirit. Beware of those who speak of Christ as purely a historical figure. We believe that Christ was a historical figure. But we believe he is so much more. Because Christ, though having died, has not remained dead. Rather, Christ, being risen on high and ascended to the right hand of God, lives now and makes intercession for his people and who has poured out the Spirit and so works now to bring in the salvation of those whom God has determined from eternity past to deliver from an estate of sin and misery. Those who want to simply speak of Christ apart from the Spirit do that. Those who want to speak of Christ only as a historical figure fail to recognize that it is Christ who has given the Spirit, who still presently is at work through the ministry of the Spirit. This is why Paul says here, and why Paul says elsewhere, that it is the Spirit's presence that brings liberty. Again, note the contrast in this chapter. Moses' ministry was a ministry of condemnation and death. It was a declaration of the law. The gospel, of course, was given in shadowy form. But there's a proclamation of condemnation and death because the law cannot save. It only exposes the fact that we need a Savior. The law curses sinners who violate God's holy righteousness. The law condemns. The law shows how we have been enslaved by our own sinful passions. Luther will say that we are as men bent in on ourselves. Curved inward, self-absorbed, and self-obsessed. 
blinded to the duties that we owe both God and neighbor. But now that the Spirit has come, it's not that the law has been completely disregarded so that we can live however we want. Rather, the Spirit has been given to enable us to walk in God's law. As the Spirit has been given to deliver us from the curse of the law. Because it is Christ who became a curse for us, bearing the curse so that we might be delivered from sin's enslaving power and the curse of the law that hangs over us. Galatians 3, Paul says this to the church there. Christ delivered us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us so that in Christ we might receive what? The promised spirit through faith. The whole of the Old Testament can summed in those words, the sending of the Son and the outpouring of the Spirit. That is the summary of the Old Testament. We find its fulfillment in the New Testament. Christ bore the penalty of the law that we might be delivered from the curse of the law. And now he gives us the Spirit and applies effectually the benefits of that deliverance to his people You see, the liberty that we have been granted is not a political, this worldly liberty. There's no guarantee that we will not be enslaved to human political regimes or powers. This is not the liberty of which Paul speaks. Rather, this is a far greater liberty. It's why Christ will say, don't fear the man or the powers that can toss your body into prison or even into the grave, but fear him who can cast your soul into hell. See, by the work of the Spirit, a greater liberty is given. The deliverance from the curse of the law, the deliverance from sin's enslaving power, the freedom to walk in the Lord's ways. Read Luther's The the Freedom of a Christian Man. It's the freedom, finally, to love our neighbor as ourselves as we are being delivered from our own self-absorption and self-centeredness. There's a freedom to keep in step with the Spirit that we might love our neighbor freely. And it's a liberty that brings real and lasting change, as we see here in verse 18. Again, if you go to a bookstore, Barnes & Noble or any of the other local bookstores here in Corvallis, you'll notice that in any, most discussions in those books you'll find of spirituality speak of self-empowerment. You know, the 10 steps to overcoming addictions, the, the, the goals to becoming a better you, really seems to be a little more than behavior modification. You know, the attempt to have you adapt to a new set of healthy or uh, carefree circumstances marketed by the latest ad execs to get you to buy their particular program. But here what we find in the new covenant is Christ has been given, and Christ has given the Spirit to change our hearts Not to conform us to this kind of ever-shifting morality of the week that we find emanating from Hollywood, but rather to inscribe the moral law of God himself, which does not change on our hearts. The law given in the Ten Commandments. this This is the Lord's character. This is the path of life. This is the way in which we are to walk. That's why we speak of the law In another sense, not just speaking of the curse of the law, but we speak of the rule of life. And what it means is it's the Christian's code of conduct. Now that we've been received into the courts of the king and adopted as sons of the living God, he gives us a code by which we are to walk and abide by. 
but he gives us the Spirit who enables us to walk in those prescribed ways. Notice the subject of the, uh, of the transformation. It's the whole person. It talks about, you know, when, it talks, when we talk about the, the heart of an individual in, the new, in, in all of Scripture, some of us only think of um, our affections. Sometimes you hear the phrase, the, the mind versus the heart. Uh, there's some value to it, but I actually don't think that really gets at the, the way in which Scripture really speaks of the heart. In Scripture, the heart refers to the whole person, the mind, the will, and the affections. You, you read uh, the Proverbs. It'll talk about the mind of the heart. See, the heart speaks of those things that we think, the mind, those things that we choose, the will, and those things that we love, the affections. It speaks to the whole man. That's why uh, we are to love the Lord our God with our whole being. What we see under Moses is Moses' face may have been transformed when he was behind the curtain at the heights of Sinai, but that transformation only ran skin deep, and it was something that was fading. But now, under the new covenant ministry, we get to the heart of the matter, because the Spirit comes to change us from the inside out. He comes to change our character. Notice that word in verse 18. I believe the ESV has it uh, translated as transformed. It's a very good translation, but it is a difficult word to translate. Um, uh, the, the idea here is to, to contemplate, to, to look as if you were uh, one looking in a mirror. To see things in that reflection now, there are other translations that, uh, that translate it differently. For instance, I believe it's the NIV, or at least older versions uh, of the NIV will say that it's not that we are being transformed, but that we are reflecting Christ's uh, glory. Well, the question is, what is Paul getting at here? Is he saying that we're being transformed or that we're simply reflecting Christ's character? And of course, I think it is true that those who have been endowed and empowered by the Spirit do reflect Christ's character. But, but the point that Paul is making here is not simply that we reflect the Lord's glory as in a mirror, but rather that we see Christ in a mirror. And that as we contemplate Christ, as we look at Christ in the mirror of Scripture, the Spirit begins to work and change our hearts. Paul's going to get at this uh, more fully. This is not just kind of a passing reference that he makes where he goes on to a different topic. This is an ongoing, further deepening argument that Paul is making with the church of Corinth, where Paul will make this argument in chapter 5, verse 7, that we walk by faith, not by sight. We do not see Christ with our physical eyes. So images and icons of Christ cannot help us in this matter. The mode of the Christian's walk is not by sight, rather the mode of the Christian's walk, his pilgrimage is that of faith, something that is seen that runs antithetical to sight. As Peter himself says in his first letter that we do not see Christ face to face presently, though we will one day, rather we behold him, as it says here, this is what Paul's getting at, we see Christ in a mirror, the mirror of scripture, we see Christ in his word reflected as it speaks of his person, of his office, and of his work. And that when we behold Christ and consider who he is and what he has done, as we set our sights on the good news of salvation that is bound up in the sending of Christ and the outpouring of the Spirit, 
We come to recognize more fully a salvation that is found in Christ alone, that comes by grace alone, and is received by faith alone. It's when we do that that the Spirit begins to transform our hearts. This is not something that we do, this is something that is done in us. Notice uh, the passive voice. We are being transformed. It's not we are transforming ourselves. But as we consider, as we behold Christ's glory by faith, the Spirit transforms us. This is not behavior modification. There are things we must do, that is for certain. So we are called to put sin to death and to live to righteousness. But it's something that can only be accomplished by the power of the Spirit as He enables us to fight against sin and transforms us in that very process. And notice this, there's a progressive focus. This does not happen overnight. You know, we have uh, other uh, um, uh, sister, uh, brothers and sisters uh, of different denominations. Claim, all you gotta do is just name it, claim it. You just pray and it'll be an instantaneous act of sanctification. One and done. Let go and let God, that's all it takes. You're transformed in a moment. That's not what Paul says here. Notice the language. It's a progressive focus. It is not instantaneous. We are transformed from glory to glory. In other words, there's a progressive change that takes place over time. So we consider to behold Christ's glory in a mirror. We begin to look more and more like Christ. In Greek mythology, you know, I think many of you are familiar with the story of Narcissus, the man who's so in love with himself that he, he falls in love with his own image in a mirror, that he ends up starving himself to death. He can't look away, so he doesn't eat, he doesn't drink, and he just wastes away and dies. Well, here we see, we are called to look in Scripture to see in a mirror Christ, not simply ourselves. Of course, as we look in the mirror of Scripture, we we come to see ourselves, and we realize that we aren't that pretty. We're actually quite sinful. But as we behold Christ, the Spirit begins to work and cleanse us of that sin. We see Christ in Scripture, and by beholding His glory, we are transformed by the Spirit's work to look like Him progressively, daily. Some days, that transformation might look very, very subtle. We wonder, has there even been any transformation at all? We think of the transformation that takes, the, the Greek word here is metamorphosis, same word we get. Think of the idea of, of, of the, the caterpillar um, metamorphizing into the butterfly is the picture that we have here. It's an ongoing transformation of the spirit in our hearts. Because Christ has borne the sin, he declares not guilty. You are righteous in Christ. And now I've given you the spirit that you might look like Christ, that you might be what I've already declared you to be, which is righteous. Freedom from sin, real and lasting transformation and change. All this comes from the Lord Jesus Christ who gives the Spirit. Quite literally here in verse 18, the Greek reads that he is the Lord of the Spirit. The Spirit who comes from Christ is the Spirit of Christ. The glory of the new covenant is the glory of Christ. 
Now, Christ has established this new covenant by his death and resurrection. We will commemorate that covenant this morning when we come to the table. A covenant whereby Christ, upon his ascension on high, sends the Spirit to unite us in Christ, that we might look to Christ, so that we might look like Christ. So returning to the earlier question we had this morning, what is the ministry? What is the purpose of the ministry? It's not simply to have kind of a sanctified TED Talk. The purpose of the ministry is to preach Christ. To get you to behold Christ in Scripture, the eyes of faith, so that you might put your hope in Christ. So that you might look like Christ more and more, from one degree of glory to another. Because in so doing, you will find true freedom and lasting change. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we do thank you for your word, and we ask our deepest desire, Lord, we would wish to see Christ. Father, we do pray that by your Spirit's power you would enable us to see your Son as he has given to us in your word. That in contemplating Christ in his person, in his office, and in his work, we would be conformed more and more to look like Christ, even as we undergo the sufferings and miseries of this present age and look forward to the glory of the age to come, that when we see you, we will be transformed in a moment, for we will see you face to face and be like you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.